all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy from MPB Think Radio. This is Dr. Jimmy Stewart with you this morning answering your calls about any kind of health care topic that might be burning a hole through your mind. Hopefully not. that's not literally, that's a figurative statement there. Email us, that email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Still hot out there, certainly lots of areas in the south that are really, really dangerous and uh, certainly there are certain times I think fortunately in Mississippi, we are a little bit more aware of this than in other places because we deal with it just about every year. So it's just a a little bit longer this time. But uh, be careful out there again. Choose your times to be outside if you can do that uh, wisely and um, take care of yourself by hydrating frequently. If you're outside, if you do have chronic medical conditions, please uh, take the necessary precautions that you need to try to minimize any kind of risk that you might have. But uh, certainly uh, great weather for getting out and doing activities um, if you can if you can stand the heat. I've been trying to get outside myself and run a little bit more and and bike a little bit more. So always a, always a good opportunity to do that in, during this time of year. Lots of uh, we may get to a couple of emails in just a minute if we have time, but uh, we do want to go ahead and give you permission. It's always hard to be that first caller, so I'm giving you permission right now. So one of our uh, recent emails dealt with a discolored toenail, and these can be um, caused by a number of things, and uh, it can be both discolored. They actually sent a picture, which is a nice thing to do with, uh, you know, with an email. It doesn't quite uh, come over uh, always exactly how it looks over the radio, um, but uh, they sent a picture there and said it's been that way for a couple of months. Is there anything that you can do for it? They've been applying some things topically to it. And uh, the picture was very nice, and you could sort of see a discoloration in the nail. A little bit of what we would call dysmorphic features. So instead of a nice, smooth surface to that nail, it was uh, had a little bit of indentations and sort of wavy lines in that. But there was a little bit of discoloration and darkened color, sort of brownish-black. The most common thing that causes that, particularly here in the South, is a fungal infection of the toenail and the, the nail bed. 
and uh, it's very, as everybody knows, it's very humid in the south, and that's just sort of a nice place for fungi uh, to hang out. And they like uh, they like to hang out in different areas on the skin because of the high moisture content. Those that affect the nails and then the hair shaft as well. So, uh, ringworm in the scalp is another sort of vernacular term for that. Um, those take a little bit different treatment. If it's on the skin, most of the time we can treat those topically. There are some times when we might use a uh, oral agent for that. But if it's in the nail itself or in the hair, we have to use a medication that you take by mouth. So just keep that in mind. I know a lot of people will treat that topically. Really doesn't do much because you have to get to the hair follicle, which is below the surface of the skin, or the nail bed, which is underneath the nail, right you know, in that proximal, uh, the, the, the part that's closest to the center of your body, uh, not the tip of it. Even if the tip's discolored, that nail's growing out and the affected area is in the nail bed. And it does take some time to... Go away. It's not going to be instantaneous. That nail that's been damaged, it's going to stay that discolored, uh, the same color. It's going to stay, you know, the same waviness to it or, or heaped up. Sometimes they can t- uh, be several different ways they can present. And really, that nail needs to grow out. If there's been enough damage to the nail bed, uh, you can have the same thing with trauma. Like if you drop something on your toe, that nail may nail bed may be damaged uh, for the rest of your life, and it's going to grow out a little bit a little bit differently. One thing I would say, though, if it's not, um, you, you probably need to at least have somebody look at it because there are other things to consider, and certain um, certain conditions can put you at risk for that. So diabetes is one of those, but really any type of chronic disease that's going to affect your immune system uh, and your circulation and uh, higher glucose levels, anything like that uh, is a uh, it can put you a little bit more risk for having these, particularly in your nails. And even if it's not, you know, people will say, well, do I really need to treat it? It doesn't really bother me that much. You don't necessarily have to do that. It's, you know, it's very rare that that's going to invade any further than the nail itself. However, it does set up a situation where bacteria, because of irritation of the nail, can enter into the body, and that is a problem. So you might get a localized infection on your foot or your toe, and again, if you're a diabetic patient, that can be, um, you know, can be a setup for a dangerous situation. And the other reason to have somebody look at it is that in some very rare cases, you can actually get um, get skin cancer in the nail bed itself, particularly melanoma, and that will present a little bit differently, but particularly a very you know, uh, a, a lesion that doesn't look quite like what a fungal infection is going to look like. And honestly, that's that's sort of hard to, to uh, uh, for the layperson, for if you're the patient, to tell the difference in. Um, and you probably need somebody just to look at it, lay eyes on it and say, yeah, that looks more like a fungus. Or, no, that doesn't look quite right. Let's get you in to see somebody to biopsy it. So a little bit of nail changes there that you uh just to throw those kinds of things out let's go to jim from jackson good morning jim good morning uh i've got a question about arthritis treatment um sure. decades ago i hurt my low back and um uh, wasn't a surgery kind of thing but uh among the treatments my doctor gave me was celebrex and it worked really well on my low back pain 
but it, all of a sudden it was taken off the market, um, which brings me to today. Uh, over the last year, I'm 77 years old, by the way. Over the last year or so, um, I've started to develop some very painful arthritis in my wrists. It seems to be spreading to my fingers. And I did some online research, and they recommended, of all things, Celebrex <laughs> as a treatment. And uh, I have a few questions. Number one, why was it taken off the market? Number two, why is it back? And number three, would you recommend that as an initial sort of treatment? Yeah, great questions, Jim, and some that are very common to a lot of different people. You know, arthritis, particularly the wear and tear arthritis, it, it is a chronic condition that tends to get worse with age. We know that there are some things that help with that pain uh, apart from, um, you know, from medications, although a lot of patients have to take medications, particularly when the pain gets a little worse. If they're out working in the yard, maybe the next day after that, they're going to have that. And um, there, you know, uh, moving those joints does help. Uh, you know, I can remember back when they used to tell people, just don't use those joints and you won't have the pain. Well, that is partially true. But what happens is you lose the mobility and those joints will sort of freeze up with a with time. So uh, and we know now that pain actually gets better with that. That's one of the reasons why physical therapy works. The other reason is it, you can do physical therapy exercises even in your hands that take um, allow you to put that joint through the proper motion. So a lot of people, the reason we have arthritis is because we do stuff and we stress, overstress those joints, and there's better ways to use it, more efficient ways to use it that utilizes the muscles that's going to help with long-term pain. But to specifically to your question about that Celebrex, so to my knowledge, Celebrex was never taken off the market, save maybe you know if there was a contamination or anything like that. Uh, it's been on the market for a long time. Celecoxib is the generic name, too, for that. And it is something akin to uh, ibuprofen or Advil, except it lasts a lot longer. It's sort of a cousin to those, uh, to those medications. And uh, it was very well tolerated by most people. It's a, usually a once or twice a day medication at the most. The problems with it, though, and again, all of these medications are going to have some side effects. They did notice in some follow-up trials and in sort of following people for long periods of time, be, you know, taking it every day to try to prevent some pain and to increase mobility, they saw an increase in cardiovascular events and kidney problems. So cardiovascular events would be things like heart attack. Um, and then uh, kidney function actually went down, and some people had more serious reactions to that. That's not any different than taking Advil or ibuprofen for long periods of time. So it's the same type of risk with that. And then, of course, there's other risks, too. A lot of people develop, uh, you know, because of the way that it acts on uh, as an anti-inflammatory agent, uh, they had some problems in their stomach with, uh, you know, with gastritis and those kinds of things and sometimes GI bleeding. But it's never been taken off the market. I have a few patients that are still taking it either on a PRN basis if they're having some bad days or, you know, more chronically. There's a couple of other ones out there. Things like Mobic or Meloxicam uh, is another long acting agent that you only have to take once a day. But what I usually recommend, particularly if you're over the age of 65, is that, again, what are our goals of therapy? Our goals are to uh, increase mobility and try to decrease pain enough so that you can do the things you need to do and to keep that joint moving. Um, 
but to also balance that against other side effects. So if you don't have chronic kidney disease, certainly if you already have some damage to your kidneys for whatever reason, I would sort of steer away from NSAIDs of any kind, including uh, Celebrex, and maybe try to go towards uh, a non, uh, you know, a non NSAID type medication like Tylenol or other chronic medications that can have been proven to decrease uh, um, chronic pain over time, and then maybe some non medication modalities too. But um, but if your if your kidneys are functioning fine and there's not any problem, I have some patients. I'm like, look, just try not to do it every day. But if you you know if that's really impacting your life with the pain and the decreased movement, it's okay to just take it intermittently. And um, when you go back and look at some of that earlier data, there were it sort of was an overestimation of the people who had uh, problems with cardiovascular disease from it. And I think overall, you, with your individual patient, you have to sort of say, okay, look, how bad is this pain? Is it really impacting your life? Are there any other alternatives? But if this is the thing that you've tried, you know, other stuff and it hadn't really worked as well, then, yeah, you could certainly take that. But never off the market except for maybe a recall. You know, every once in a while they'll have something like that. But I'm not aware of uh, – there were some warnings, some black box warnings that went out with that, with that earlier data. But I still have a few patients that are taking that, and they haven't had any problems in 10, 15 years. Okay, great. Thank you so much. That's been very helpful. All right. Thank you, Jim, for calling. So, Dr. Jimmy, while we wait for some calls to come in, I've got a two-part hydration question for you. That would be good. You caught me while I was hydrating. Yeah, that's I, yeah, a little faux pas there. So it's like I need to take a, a sip of water while, while Kevin's talking. <laughs> so uh, first of all, what does hydration do for us in terms of dealing with the heat? And why is prehydration or getting liquid before you go out in the heat so important? Yeah, great questions. Uh, you know, most of our body is made up of water. And uh, it's anywhere from 70, 80 percent of, of our bodies are water. And it is integral to everything like it. Each one of our cells has is mostly water. Um, we use water for different processes in our body. Certainly blood uh, is one of those. But it's really everything in our body, even things you think about. <clears throat> people think, well, they're pretty dry. They don't have a lot of water content like bone. Not true. There's a lot of water content in active bone. We just see bones after they're taken out of the body. Um, So just about every process depends on a certain amount of water. And um, even to, you know, to process the foods that we eat, to keep our lung tissue hydrated so that we can have adequate oxygen and CO2 exchange in those membranes uh, across the lungs, um, and to get rid of substances that we need to process and get rid of, breakdown products that our bodies normally get rid of, it's things that we take in that we need to get rid of, uh, go out through the kidney, and that's mainly a water-based uh, solvent type issue and trying to get that outside the body. So just everything depends on that and um, on on adequate hydration. And what happens if you don't get enough? Well, every single one of those systems suffers and including electrolytes. Electrolytes are just substances that are dissolved in, uh, in, in water, in our tissues and things like sodium, potassium, chloride. And we have to have a certain amount of these in different tissues, both inside the cell and outside the cell. For instance, if your sodium uh, content, the concentration of that, 
gets too high. And if you got severely dehydrated, that's usually what happens. The body is unable to balance that sodium level in such a way, and you get more sodium. You can actually have problems. Number one, you start to get symptoms, like you start to get a headache, uh, which is common during dehydration. You could get some nausea that is associated with that. In severe cases, you might have a seizure because, uh, again, that sodium dissolved in water in the right content inside tissues, not necessarily what you take in, that's going to have an effect on how they work, and you can have a seizure or muscle spasms. And that's just one example with sodium. So <clears throat> it is very important to keep that hydration going. And, you know, people will say, well, if our sodium gets real high, why do you need sodium in some of the rehydration drinks? Well, again, it's what you lose in the concentration of that. So um, if you think about, you know, how you dissolve things uh, in water, it's the total amount of that sodium dissolved in the total volume. So I can raise the concentration of it if I have the exact same amount of sodium or even lose sodium, but I lose more water than I lose sodium. Uh, so a little bit of chemistry there for uh, just tossing that out there, tossing that chemi- that salt to the wind, so to speak. Um, but uh, that's one of the reasons why. And why does prehydration, why is it so important? Well, if you think about it, when you get out there and you wait until you're thirsty, particularly now with temperatures up you know, near 100 with heat indexes we've seen up in the 110s, uh, that is hot enough that if you wait 15 or 20 minutes and you're already behind going out, if you're already, if you haven't been drinking anything much in the last couple of hours, prehydration is very, very important. And you don't need to get fancy in prehydration because water's just fine. So you can drink, you know, six, eight ounces, go out, start doing your activities, and then hydrating about every 15 to 20 minutes, particularly in activities where you're, you know, heavily working at it. If you're much beyond 45 minutes outside, particularly if you're not conditioned to be in that, you need to come out, take a break, uh, get in the shade, cool back down, hydrate a little bit more, go back out. Um, so, but prehydration, if you, if you don't do that and you, you just go out there and you just wait till you're thirsty, you're going to be behind. You're always going to be behind because you started behind. Um, you know, if you if you think about this from the standpoint of if you're going on a trip, let's say I'm going to Chicago and um, I start out with one gallon of gas in my tank in my car, I'm not going to be able to go very far before I run out of gas. So I'm going to have to fill up. But whereas if I went ahead and filled up, I'm going to have a lot more, uh, you know, a lot more in the tank and I can go a lot farther before I fill up again. So that's one poor man's analogy, I guess, uh, poor Jimmy analogy there <laughs> to uh, to go over that. But that's a great question, certainly pertinent for right now. But it does cause a lot of problems. And uh, you can have kidney failure. You can have uh, heart problems. You can have, uh, you know, you can overheat because that's another way that our body cools down is through sweat. And if we're not able to do that, Um, because we don't have enough water and it's trying to conserve it from, you know, some of our central systems like our brain and our heart uh, and our blood vessels, then then that's that's all an issue. And if you don't have enough to support the circulatory system, you can't generate enough blood pressure to perfuse all your organs and they start to fail. So 
it is incredibly important. And we can't go very long without it. You know, you can only last about three days. And if you're in the heat like this, a few hours, if and incidentally, old, the older you are, the less likely your body is able to regulate that process. And you may not have the same thirst mechanism to rehydrate or the very young because they lose because of their body surface area being so much greater. Infants, young children will lose a lot of a uh, lot more water quickly and they'll overheat. That's, you know, we unfortunately, um, you know, this time of year, we hear every once in a while about somebody that left their child in the car while they went in the grocery store and you can really drive the temperature up quick in a car um, you can have temperatures that are up around 200 degrees inside, and that's just not a good idea for a young child or an adult for that matter. Great question. We could talk all day on that and get more dehydrated, but I'd have to stop and, t- and take a sip of my water there. Let's go to Jimmy from Philadelphia. Good morning, Jimmy. Uh, good morning. What's your question this morning? Well, I want to know, when is it necessary to go to the emergency room for a stitch or two when you have a small cut that continues to bleed for, say, 15, 20 minutes or longer? Yeah. Uh, Great question. You know, bleeding, um, you know, I used to work in the ER a lot more, particularly the pediatric ER, and uh, worked across the state in a couple of different ERs for a while. So we did have patients that came in from time to time of any age, and one of the first things I, I'm going to ask you and uh, with this hypothetical question and uh, that I would ask a patient is, are you taking anything that could make you bleed more or have you had a problem with this in the past? So that would change our scenario a little bit if we're already on a blood thinner. Okay. Um, okay. I myself am not, but my husband, the big time gardener is, <laughs> he can he can get a scratch from a blackberry briar and will bleed for a long, long time. Yeah. And recently had a uh, wound that he didn't even realize he had. And it it looked deeper than just a briar scratch. But he did go and get a, a couple of staples at the ER. So I want to know for future reference, you know, yeah. what should he and I each sure. consider as necessary what, to deal with it? What type of blood thinner is he on? Do you know the name of it? Oh, I do not. Okay. And we're not, he's not with me at the moment. No, that's okay. We can answer that. So, um, the, so blood thinners don't all act the same way. And it, we really need to back up and, and understand what happens when you cut yourself and you break open some blood vessels. How does your body make that stop? And there's a, there's a, Beautiful. It's one of the most, I think, uh, beautiful things about the body and the way it's designed to really do this. And uh, the first thing that happens is you usually get platelets uh, that are attracted to the surface of that vessel that's that that is used to be really smooth, and now it's got rough edges. And there's some other cross-linking things that sort of uh, cross-link and those platelets together, almost like cement. And then you get this nice fibrin clot right there. So it's not totally, there may be a little bit of oozing with that. But if you look at it under the microscope, there's all these different fibers that are just being laid down and platelets are coming to that area. Platelets don't just float around like they're attracted to these areas. And those help to form that initial clot. And then you have a clotting cascade. So there's different factors 
that help in the clotting system. And it is a balance because you don't want those to over, you know, be overactivated. That's when you get blood clots, say, in your lower extremities or your lungs, and that can be a bad mm-hmm. thing. But it has to work in order to not, you know, if it didn't work, and in patients, unfortunately, that you have a problem with that system, they don't even have to have a cut. They begin to ooze blood from all different places from their body, particularly their GI tract. Um, so that's happening in the background all along to try to, you know, little bitty micro places where you might have some bleeding that it stops that right quick. And then that gets more solidified and that clot sort of um, as tissues heal around it over time, you know, that sort of goes up. But the, really the first minutes, seconds to minutes is a first system and then a secondary system and a tertiary system sort of takes takes hold after that to sort of uh, mature that clot so that you don't have active bleeding. The other thing to think about that, because it is sort of a mechanical first you know, I see a lot of people, they'll have a cut and they'll take a, a towel or a, a napkin or something and they'll wipe it. They'll they'll wipe it, you know, across their skin. And that's not a good idea because basically that clot that formed there on the top of it, you're just wiping that clot off and it's going to bleed more. Um, so the thing to do is direct pressure. Direct pressure doesn't mean scrubbing, rubbing pushing it sideways across the skin. It's direct pressure against that. That is the the most effective thing in somebody who isn't on blood thinners or even if they are, because you're providing extra resistance on that. And I know a lot of places you don't, aren't as apt to do that. Certainly if you're gardening or using your, you know, you get cut on your legs or your arms, that's the easiest places to compress. And you hold that pressure there. Most people don't hold it long enough. They'll hold it for maybe 30 seconds and then lift it off and look at it because we just were like, oh, is it, is it stopped yet? Is it stopped? Um, mm-hmm. Really, right. you have to Dr. hold it. Doctor. Right, exactly. Uh, so Dr. Jimmy. Um, Go ahead. The, um, yes, I thank you for all of that information. And uh, uh, essentially, uh, after applying pressure and it continues to bleed, uh, is it necessary to go see a doctor? Yeah. Or if, after so many minutes, how many? Right. Minutes? I, so I would say if you, if you've held pressure for say five ten minutes and it's still bleeding actively, oozing through there, then that's the point where you need to go get get it seen about. I wouldn't let it go much past ten minutes if you're holding pressure on it. The other thing I would uh-huh. say is if it's pulsatile. Uh, if it's deep enough to where you've hit an artery, a small artery, and it's coming in spurts, and you can see that, not you know just constant, that's another reason to go in because there may be yeah, may need some other things, and and you can reverse some of those blood thinners too. There's some ways to do that, or apply things to the cut itself that can sort of be sort of artificial cross links to that. Um, so there are some ways to do that depending on what the blood thinner is. Perfect. Well, this was a blood thinner post um, heart incident. So yeah, that's been, probably been it's probably blocking the platelet function. So, you know, an aspirin does this. So it prevents those platelets from linking together, from cross linking. Um, mm-hmm. And then um, usually after a procedure like that for the heart, they'll put somebody on on one or most of the time two antiplatelet agents. Aspirin being one of those, Plavix is another one. Um, so, and and then maybe even something else like Eliquis is a common one that's that's used after something like that. But um, okay, 
Yeah, but that. Well, I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you so very much. Absolutely. Okay. Ho- hope Sorry that... to interrupt you. No, 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 no. Some... No, sometimes I just get going in my, you know, like I'm lecturing to, to uh, medical students. So I appreciate that to be like, wait, wait, wait. This is, this is okay. ans- over answering the question. Well, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for calling. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your calls and questions about any kind of healthcare topic that you are interested in. Again, might be something that you didn't quite understand about a medication or a diagnosis or maybe a new symptom. Got some great questions so far, and you can join that conversation and uh, start a new one. Or send us an email. I know not everybody can call during this time. Uh, you can always uh, s- uh, send us that information by email by sending it to remedy at mpbonline.org. And speaking of sort of asynchronous um, utilization of this program, uh, just not not necessarily at this time, you can always uh, connect with us through your um, favorite podcasting app. Just search for Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio and you can download and listen to those at your leisure anytime you want. Over and over. Maybe you didn't uh, quite get the first part of a conversation, too. That's another way to go in and say, oh, wait, I didn't quite get that. Let me let me go back in. Got a, I got a call, uh, sorry, an email uh, from another listener who said his wife was prone to some ear infections. But unfortunately, right now, they don't really have the resources to get, uh, you know, to pay for medical care. Um, due to uh, not having insurance, and were there any kind of um, other resources? And uh, actually, there are. And uh, I gave them some specifics about where they where they were inquiring where they live. Uh, but there are some either free or sliding scale uh, clinics that you know. In other words, they depending on how much you can pay, they do try to offset a lot of their um, of their expenses that way. Uh, but uh, Check into that if you have the internet. If you have internet access, you can look for that. Just say free clinics, free medical clinics in my area, and they can list a lot of those. And you might be surprised because it is sometimes hard to figure that out. I know here in Jackson, and particularly, you know, UMMC uh, has a student run. It's not just students though. It's uh, students have a large part of running it and do an excellent job. But it's an interdisciplinary clinic called the Jackson Free Clinic. Uh, and it is a wonderful resource to people who don't have uh, the means to access medical care. It actually has a dental and physical therapy uh, pharmacy uh, pharmacist uh, involvement in that. And we have um, we have physicians who are faculty at UMMC also there every Saturday. So that's one example of a resource. But just check that out in your area. The other thing is talk to your physicians that you you were going to all you know already, or call them and say, do you have like a a you know payment method or can I talk to the business people to understand how you know we might do that and a lot of them will even will either have like a certain percentage of the patients that they see that they'll do with no fees involved or they'll have sort of a sliding scale fee that they can work with you about that so don't just think because you don't have insurance right now that you can't access some care uh, there are a few ways that you can do that. You just need to sort of ask around depending on where your area is. I'm going to go to Shirley from Grenada. Good morning, Shirley. Good morning. Thank you for calling. What's your uh, question this morning? Well, my question is I have gone to a gastro 
Enterologist, I don't know what I'm pronouncing it right. You got it. Yeah, gastroenterologist. I just call them the GI doctors. Okay, that's easier for That's me right. Me, me too. <laughs> but the thing about it is I went there for a hernia. I felt like my I had a hernia because I have this bulging that continued to bulge out and makes you cough. And when I look something heavy, it bulges. But anyway, he did a, a CAT scan. And he told me that I did not have a hernia, but he said I had calcium built. And my thing is, how do you get rid of the calcium? Yeah. Can you get rid of the calcium? And how serious is this? Yeah. Is this something I need to be worrying about? Yeah, and I'm assuming the cal. Well, let me back up on the. So, was the hernia in the front part of your of your abdomen in the midline, right there in the middle? Well, the hernia is located right under my right breast. Okay. It's, it's in a place where, you know, no, they said normally you wouldn't have one, but uh, right. I, I had one repaired there many years ago. Uh, and this is like that it has yeah. come back or something or something going on there. Yeah. But this is the yeah, the, and and they, you can have a hernia in multiple locations, and sometimes an old surgical site like that, even if it was a hernia repair, over time those can sort of break down, and it's just a weakness in that tissue that normally would sort of you know you know that has like muscle or or tendons or ligaments there. Um, but you can have them in lots of different places in your on your abdomen and. That sounds like it's a spigmalian hernia, but it's in the location of it. I couldn't be sure unless I saw it, but um, that it. And in the, uh, spigmalian. That's sp. Don't ask me to spell that. That's worse than gastroenterologist. Uh, uh, but I think it's. It, if you look at hernia locations on your abdomen, there's about four or five different places that you could have it. You could have one in the midline. You could have it at your umbilicus, your belly button. You can have one on the sides of your uh, abdominal muscles. Uh, you can have an incisional hernia, again, from a previous surgery, you know, all the way down to an inguinal hernia, and there's two types of that, an indirect and a direct. So there's lots of different places right there. Femoral hernias that you can't normally see. But if, if that looks... The other thing to keep in mind is a CT scan won't always pick up on smaller ones. Um, so that may not – sometimes an ultrasound's a little bit better for that. But it, generally speaking, if it's not like – it'll poke out like if you pick something up and it may be a little uncomfortable. But if you're not having like a hard mass right there that, that's forming or, you know, intense pain that doesn't go away, um, you know, those are reasons to have it, you know, looked at and, and have it maybe repaired. But um, – Apart from that, those usually in that location don't cause a lot of problems. But back to this calcium question. So this is this is something that we find from time to time. You'll get one test, like a CT scan, and although it didn't really answer the question about the hernia, it finds something else because they're looking at you know all the other organs in your abdomen uh, when they when they do that. And as we get older, it is common to have calcification, so calcium deposits in blood vessels. And I'm assuming this is probably in your aorta or some of the other vessels coming off the aorta. Um, that's the main artery there in your, in your abdomen. 
And um, again, that's called that's atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So it's it's calcium deposits and other materials that sort of get deposited on in that arterial wall, and it can make those arteries harder. Um, it's one of the reasons why you can get high blood pressure as you get older because of that. And they, there's not really any procedure to be done, just scrape it off or anything. Like I've had patients ask me, can you just go in and do sort of a rotor rooter of all that and get it cleaned out? No, that's not the way the blood vessels work. But um, there are some things you can do to, to uh, help stabilize it, though, and to maybe regress a little bit on that. One is to really look at what you're eating and your exercise patterns. And you don't need to become a professional athlete at any age or dramatically change what you eat. Most of the time, making some small changes can have big effects. So more of a plant-based diet with lots of fruits and vegetables over a long period of time, months to years, can, you know, help prevent the progression of that same thing with moderate exercise and again you don't have to be fancy just you know if you can walk that's one thing uh just something where you're getting your heart rate up most days of the week working up to say 20 to 30 minutes of that and then controlling other chronic diseases that you have can help like hypertension diabetes high cholesterol so if you haven't had those things looked at, that would be another thing to have, you know, your physician look at and say, hey, I've got this in, you know, this in here. And that's mainly the risk. Now, if you were, say, I have no idea how old you are, but um, if you were in your 20s, 60, uh, 60 what? 69. 69, okay. So 69 years young. So, again, that wouldn't be too – if we just did a CT scan of everybody regardless of, of you know, at, at that age, regardless of what kind of problems they have, we're going to find a lot of people that have calcium deposits in those arteries. But it's not necessarily something that you need, need to do outside of those other risk factors. It's not one of those red flags that pops up that we're like, oh, we got to do something right now. Um but eating a healthy diet, exercising, making sure that your blood pressure is controlled, you don't have diabetes, and if you do, that it's controlled, making sure cholesterol is in the normal range, those are all things that can help reduce the risk of what that calcium is telling you. The calcium itself is not necessarily the, the worst thing. It's saying, hey, there's been some wear and tear on these arteries with age and over time, and you just have to minimize the continued risk of that. Sounds good. Sounds uh, good. You uh, gave me a lot of information there. All so right. Therefore, I don't need to be doing anything different from what I'm doing. Yeah. Because like I say, with the hernia, with the hernia thing, it's like um, real something that pops out. Right. And I have to get it back in place for, you know, the, the pain to go away. Yeah. I get some, I'd, I'd get somebody else to look at that. I might have a surgeon look at that if it's sort of popping in and out and having pain. And you've had a previous surgery there. Because uh, GI doctors... Many years ago, when I had the surgery hernia, I had a surgery. I mean, a hernia there many years ago. Yeah, but uh, it's in the same area. I same bet. Area. I bet it's just recurred. Even if the CT shows you different, that's that sounds like a recurrence to me. I'd I'd get your physician to get you in to see a surgeon just to take a look at it. Okay. Thank you.
Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. So uh, we've had a great question so far about all kinds of different issues. Um, If you want to contact us and you weren't able to call, please send us an email. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. And here's one right now. Uh, This is about migraine medications. It says, I'm currently taking Maxalt, 12.5 milligrams, and it's very expensive, and insurance only allows four of those monthly. Uh, Their insurance will not pay for other medications. Can uh, like uh, Ubrevly was the one that they mentioned. Can you recommend a cheaper medication, alternative medication? They're 59 years old and taking some other medications uh, related to obesity. Yeah, so this is a um, great question. Uh, migraine headaches very common. Um, Maxalt is one of those medications that you can take. Uh, it's called a, 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 well, it's a medication that basically when you feel that headache, that migraine headache, coming on, you can take it, and most of the time it'll uh, stop it in its tracks. Works much, much better if you you take it early in the game. In other words, you you know, most people with migraines, they know that they're coming on before they're actually there. They'll say, hey, I'm about to have a migraine because they get some kind of what we call an aura, A-U-R-A. So it's like maybe some people, and everybody's a little bit different with this. Some people will see sort of funny lights or they'll get their taste will change or they'll have just a funny feeling or even smell something that's a little weird. Um, those are all reasons that you could take that max off. But there are some limitations with it and cost is one of those and different insurances cover that. Now it is all, it really is designed to be used best when you have the migraine. So that's why an insurance company is saying, hey, you get only four a month. So uh, we're we're banking on that a con- a person who has controlled migraine headaches would only have one to two per month, and that would be our goal because they can be pretty debilitating. So I would I would suggest talking to your physician about maybe some other medications that can help prevent migraines because again this is a treatment right so maxalt would be the one of the treatments for it that you take when you're having one but there are medications that you can take every day whether or not you're having a migraine or not to help prevent it probably the cheapest one and this has been studied most in adolescents and children is riboflavin riboflavin is a b vitamin b is in boy um, and it is very uh, has been shown to be very useful in the prevention of migraine headaches. You can buy it over the counter. It's not one of the vitamins that you have to worry about taking too much because, again, as long as you're hydrated, it actually gets um, uh, removed through your kidneys um, in your urine. So that's one uh, alternative that you could take. And hydration is another one. So we know now that uh, under hydrated states, we have more migraines in the summer months. Uh, particularly in the South, because people get dehydrated, and that sort of is one of the triggers of that. Um, Adequate sleep is another one. So all of these things, if you can control some of those, they can reduce your uh, risk of a migraine. And then finally, um, you know, there are some other medications that your insurance may pay for, things like Topamax or uh, uh, amitriptyline has been used in the past. There's a couple of other ones, too, that uh, aren't, maybe quite as specific as you brevely uh, or some of the newer ones that help prevent migraine headaches, but they have been, you know, sort of a secondary or tertiary tier. So if you haven't already, um, haven't already um, 
uh, tried those, that might be something that that you might look into. But I would just I would try to do those those basic things first, uh, combined with the riboflavin. Uh, try it for a couple of weeks to a month and see if you can't cut down on how much max salt that you have that you're taking. Because if you're taking more than that a month, um, again, that the goal is to have one or two migraines a month or less. Uh, and Mac, taking max salt is not going to prevent them. It's going to treat them when you have them. So that, I would sort of shift over to thinking about it from that, that standpoint. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. You can tune to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.